Welcome to the Maternal Health Innovation Podcast, Season 3. I'm Allison Stubbe, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the UNC School of Medicine. And I'm Kimberly Harper, the Research Associate at the University Collaborative for Maternal and Infant Health. And I want to clarify, I'm Kimberly D. Harper because I'm joined by another amazing Kimberly Harper, too. On this podcast, we listen to maternal health innovators about ways we can implement change to improve maternal health in the United States. And today we're joined by our two of our colleagues and co-collaborators, Kimberly C. Harper and Jania Williams, and they help us to lead the Believe Project. Believe is short for Building Equitable Linkages with Interprofessional Education Valuing Everyone, and it's a powerful collaboration between the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. It's a project that's more than just a curriculum. It's a commitment to improving maternal care teams and bridging healthcare disparities. And I'm excited to have this conversation with Jenny and Kimberly, so we can get started. Do you want to start with some introductions and sharing kind of the inspiration behind our work together? Okay, yeah. So I'm the other Kimberly C. Harper on the team, and I'm an English professor in the Department of English at North Carolina A&T State University. I came to this work after my own traumatic birth experience, and I started thinking about you know, what are other Black women experiencing? So I started asking around and I began to think about um, the systems of power in place and how power, language, and medical racism kind of intersect to affect the care that Black women are receiving, which has led me to write and research about health communication and medical rhetoric and, of course, Black maternal health. So that's how I arrived at this work. And Jania reached out to me, asked me if I was interested to work on this project. So I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to actually be on a project with you. I remember when I first found out about the other Kimberly Harper, I was headed somewhere for another project. And they're like, I can't wait to hear you tonight. And I said, I'm not going to be there. (laughs) And it was actually you. So I'm actually excited to be able to collaborate with you. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) And that's when I met the other Kimberly Harper, because I was like, oh, Kimberly Harper's doing a thing on uh, streaming. I'm going to watch it. And I was like, that's not Kimberly Harper, but this is really cool. (laughs) So it's great to be with you now. Yeah, likewise. It's been awesome. <laughs> Jania, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Jania Williams. I am at North Carolina A&T along with Kimberly C. Harper. I am the program director of the Human Lactation Training Program, and we are the only public university to have a pathway to lactation program at a historically black college and university. Like Kimberly C. Harper stated, um, many black women get into maternal and child health from their own personal experiences. I am the mother of five children. All birth experiences have been different, but I got into maternal and child health because the hospital system I was working for at the time was updating their marketing to reflect baby friendly. And they said, hey, you know, can we take a picture of you nursing your baby because we need some more representation? So we agreed to do so. And that picture went up where our nursery used to be. And people in the community would stop and ask me questions about breastfeeding. And I thought they deserved better, more concrete answers. So I went back to school and obtained a master's degree in human lactation. From there, I was able to go into the health field as an IBCLC and wanted to bring more folks into the fold or workforce of human lactation, how I got to the program. But 
with starting the Believe Project, Kimberly D. Harper and I wanted to work with each other for quite some time. And so when this came across, it was Allison who reached out and said, hey, I really think this would be a great opportunity for all of us to collaborate. And looking at the landscape of my campus, Kimberly C. Harper is the only other professor doing work in the realm of maternal and child health. And so I tapped her to come on board as well. So it's great to be here. One of the things we talk about is just the drive and passion for the work that we do together and how it all connects. And I know, Allison, we introduced ourselves at the very beginning, but I wonder if you want to share more about why we do this work together, connected with Believe. And I can share after that too, if you want. Yeah, so I've always been interested in birth. My mom actually found some drawings that I made in preschool of apparently a pregnant cat and then a cat in the operating room and then kittens. That was a cat having a C-section. I did not go into veterinary medicine, but but obviously was fascinated. I was born by C-section and I would try to educate my parents' friends before they got married about the birds and the bees and various other things at a young age. So I've been in the, the reproductive health realm since a long time ago. And I think that this particular project is so exciting to me because having been practicing high-risk obstetrics for the last 20 plus years, I realized that it's a really extraordinary opportunity when we interact with people during their pregnancy and birth to begin to build trust and to potentially repair not so fabulous experiences that folks have been through in interacting with the healthcare system. And for so many birthing people, their pregnancy and birth is their first substantive interaction with the healthcare system. And if they feel seen and heard and valued, they carry that with them for their own care, for their child's care and advocating for other family members. And if they're not seen, heard and valued, then they may turn away from the healthcare system and and not get treatment and not come in when they first fill a lump with breast cancer until it's metastatic, et cetera. So it's a really important moment in people's lives. And I think it's also a, a really important moment because it's the beginning of the baby's life. And so if people remember their birth experience positively, they're going to, that day is going to come up every year. There's going to be a birthday cake. There's going to be a conversation. And if that experience was really traumatic, then that's going to be triggering. And if it was really healing, then that's going to be really powerful. So I think I'm really excited to think about how we can create the conditions for that to be an affirming and positive experience. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everything goes great, but that if it's a little bit complicated and a little bit scary, that people feel like they understood what was happening to them and they had agency and that they were treated respectfully. So that's that's why I'm here. Yeah, and I'm excited to be a part of this process, to be able to just think about helping ourselves, helping friends, because when I come to this work, I come in as a sister, a friend, a mother, a nurse, like with all the different hats and just thinking about the experience of birth. I was a childbirth educator. And I remember the first time I had a childbirthing class after I had a baby. And I was like, so I've been lying to all the people for the past like (laughs) 10 years because (laughs) I didn't know all the things. But being able to have the ability to have conversations from the perspective of a healthcare professional, but then also someone that's actually within the community or actually giving birth and what that means and helping other people to have kind of the experience and to be be able to build trust is one of the things that helps me to kind of form the passion with this. So let's think about the next question. The next question is, what is the Believe Project? Jania, you want to take the first go around for that? Yeah. So as Allison stated, I'm pretty sure you spelled out believe building equitable languages, valuing everyone. We are basically tackling maternal health disparities by teaching people how to play nicely together in the sandbox. 
That's the analogy I like to use because we are building an interprofessional educational curriculum that involves not only healthcare providers, but pre-professionals such as students. And in addition to students, we're bringing in community health workers as well, like your lactation consultants, your doulas. And more importantly, we're also involving the birthing persons and their families. And we're just wanting to establish a trustworthy relationship and encourage effective communication for better birth outcomes for our families. And when we think about that, I know you mentioned just what the belief is dedicated towards. How do you envision us addressing disparities in maternal health and working towards improving actual maternal outcomes for the healthcare team? What we envision is first, I think Allison touched on something pretty big. There is not trust in the healthcare system when it comes to communities of color. It's something that hasn't been there. And so I I really hate when I hear we're going to reestablish trust. And I'm like, wait a minute, there was never trust to start with. So we need to actually build the trust. So like, how do we do that? And so some great ways that we can do that within the belief curriculum is we're going to get people to address their biases up front because we all have those. And once we see how things come out of our mouths into the ears of others, we'll actually hear how ridiculous some things sound. And as providers, until it becomes personal, sometimes you're just going through the motions. I myself, I know I shared that I have five children. Well, baby number four was in the NICU for quite some time. And then just in my training, I'm in the NICU environment, giving patients care plans, you know, telling them to express their milk, you know, eight to 10 times a day in order to establish a milk supply and so forth. And then I have this traumatic birth experience with this really sick kid. And the last thing I want to do is pump eight to 10 times a day, because that's exactly how we are taught to say these things in schooling and in education. But until you're in that actual seat of the patient or you are the patient, you can kind of say, okay, I should approach this a little bit differently. And so teaching people how to hone in on those softer communication skills and really meeting people where they are is one of the ways that we plan to do this. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the Believe curriculum, I think when we think about our lives as Believe members, we are always in an escape room somewhere. But the curriculum for Believe is being developed in an escape room format, and it's in a unique approach. So, Allison, you want to share more about what we're doing? Yeah. So, I think that I don't know how many listeners have been to an escape room, but you know, there's a mystery to solve, and you have a bunch of people, and you all have to do your part, or else you're stuck in the escape room and you don't get out at the end, and you lose the game. And I think that you know, in, implicit in that is the idea that one person can't do it all. That you need several different people with different expertise or different perspectives to be able to solve the situation. And certainly in clinical care, there is, despite what maybe a generation of doctors was led to believe, the physician is not in charge and making all the decisions and making it happen at all. If there's anything I've learned from my own children's births, if anybody's in charge is the labor nurse, it's certainly not the doctor. I think that we're thinking about situations, for example, if a patient's pain control isn't adequate after they've had a C-section, it might be she's trying to nurse her baby and it's uncomfortable and the lactation consultant is in the room and saying, well, what if you hold the baby this way? It might be that the patient's worried that if she takes a stronger pain medicine, it's going to affect the baby and the pediatrician might look at her and say, well, I don't know if you want to take that much of that pain medicine. The clinician might say, well, I don't, you know, are you drug seeking or something and make assumptions about whether she's asking for pain medicine or not. The nurse might say, well, she's just really irritable and she doesn't understand this is normal. 
So there are a lot of different people coming in the room and participating. And her doula might say, you know, you really need to advocate for yourself. You're hurting too much. You need to say something. And all those different people, if they actually stop and listen and work together, we can go a long way toward helping that mother feel well cared for. And maybe she just has a lot of pain from her surgery and we're not going to make it go away completely. And she's not going to feel awesome. But but if we're all working together and collaborating and communicating, there's a very good chance that she's going to feel seen, heard, and valued, and the members of the team are going to be able to support her. And key to that sandbox, as Janina was describing, is that each member of the team needs to understand the scope of practice and skill set of the other people on the team and respect that. Too often, and I think physicians are usually the worst about this, I'll claim that for my people, will be like, oh, that's not true, what the lactation consultant said, or oh, no, your nurse doesn't know what she's talking about, as opposed to saying, oh, your nurse thought that might be helpful, let me touch base with her. And if I don't think what the nurse suggests is a good idea, I shouldn't diss the nurse in front of the patient, I should step out of the room and go talk to the nurse and say, Mrs. So-and-so said, you suggested this, can you help me understand what you're thinking, and learn from her, because she knows stuff I don't know, or he knows stuff I don't know, because their job is different from mine. So I think we really want to reinforce that. And what we envision is that there will be a scenario and there will be different people in the room representing different specialties and different areas of expertise. And for us to escape the room, we're each going to have to bring our puzzle piece to the table and, and place it down and see how it fits together. And so that's the way we're going to approach it. And we've learned about this approach from the interprofessional education team at UNC that's used it in other projects. So it gamifies things a little bit so that everybody has a stake in it. And then hopefully also, you know, comes to a conclusion, learns something. And I think, I don't know if we want to get into our actual escape room experiences as a team being stranded in various airports and in <laughs> squeezed into various minivans on Friday nights, but, <laughs> but we live this. And in real life, when you have a group of eight or 10 people trying to do something, everybody plays a role and we work it out. And, and I think that we want to bring that spirit to the Belief Project. Yeah, I definitely think that we bring the escape room alive and we all do have our own unique roles as each team member. I feel like I end up being like the kind of the, I'm going to do this here. And then I have somebody like Jania is the cheerleader and Kimberly is the... <laughs> She's the she's the historian because Kimberly has a whole thing about what actually happened. Yes. So we have our own little team together for sure. When I think about the belief project, I mean, well, just that example, like how it extends way far beyond just the actual curriculum. It's also evident that we're trying to impact maternal mortality and morbidity and the overall patient experience. And so when we think about this, how do you envision this connection and the comprehensive approach to improving health outcomes, Kimberly? Yeah, I think the comprehensive approach that we're taking is unique because we're bringing all these different entities together to actually have the same conversation. But we're also including, because we're including narratives and wanting to hear patient stories and finding out what their experiences are, I think that's key. I know a lot of people are doing research now where they are asking for patient narratives, but the fact that we're going to take those narratives and help let those narratives guide the curriculum and then pull in students to help guide that curriculum is important to that comprehensive approach. So if we're looking at it on both ends of the spectrum, it helps say, okay, what do you need at the beginning and the end? And so that provides us with a unique perspective that I don't think other teams that are working on maternal mortality and morbidity are, are always doing. So the curriculum is a major piece that will change, I hope, people's experiences across North Carolina and then the nation, hopefully. 
The project emphasizes the most important parts of building trust within the healthcare team and within the different roles of students. Jania, how do you envision us even thinking about the trust aspect of what that means and how it plays into communication? Again, when we are talking about trust, especially in the vein of people of color or communities of color, we do need to go in and meet them where they are. And then also, Kimberly C. Harper talks about this often, you know, health literacy is a mess (laughs) in our nation. We have to ensure that the materials that we're giving our patients, they actually understand, you know, are these things provided to everyone on a fourth grade level? Do we have interpretation services at our locations? Are we able to effectively answer our patients' questions? Because if you're a provider and you're able to answer my simple questions, that is the building of that trustworthy relationship. And if I can trust you to give me a sound answer with the smaller things, when something arises that could be detrimental to my life or my unborn baby's life, that is going to assist me with trusting you more. But another thing too is ensuring that the providers in these hospital systems work in tandem with community health workers and not just community health workers. You know, are you establishing relationships within the actual communities of the people who are being serviced in the hospital? And me being the only Black lactation consultant for some time at my hospital I, you know, quickly realized that no one had ever reached out to the community before. No one had even thought to form a relationship with those working in the health department until it was, okay, we're about to have a baby. And so just making yourselves seen will assist with ensuring that trust is being built slowly within the communities of those who are coming to those hospitals. That's a really good point, Jania. I had the opportunity to facilitate one of the panels during the National Maternal Health Innovation Symposium earlier in August. And one of the, the panel was on um, Native American Indigenous population and maternal health. And I think that same topic came, well, I know the same topic came up about how do you actually build trust? It starts with actually being together with the community and kind of changing and rephrasing the statements of I'm helping the community to changing it into my community or our community, because if you're actually working in that community and it's where the, we're together. So thinking about how you're able to encompass that whole thing. And, and during that conversation, they said that individuals that had the opportunity to make the most impact were those that actually lived there and they didn't just live there, but they also kind of embraced the whole culture and thinking about and learned from all the areas. So highlighting that piece is really important and amazing. Definitely. Um, I, I love how you said, you know, if you, those who make the greatest impact are those who are actually, we are members of the community, right? And so it's our community too. And just, you know, being someone who is involved in various aspects in the community that I live in, I often hear from people at like lunch and learns and support groups that sometimes I will go to. They say, you know, wow, you're a real person. 
you, you are just like a, you're like one of us. And I'm like, I am, I am a real whole person when I show up. And so I think that that's what makes it personal. And that's what providers should be striving to do. I completely agree. I think it also offers an opportunity with building trust as it relates to having conversations. I think about our recent connection where we were in person and all the conversations we had, Alice and we were actually laughing. We realized that there are so many times we had, we were having the exact same conversation, but they had two different meanings. And so we were talking about riding bikes. And in one context, I do ride bikes far, far away on a cycle, like as a cyclist. But in that context, we were talking about motorcycles <laughs> and we were going down a completely different way. And then I remember last night that we were talking about skating. And so we were talking about early skating and Allison was talking about ice skating. So I felt very white in that moment. I'm going to own that. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. <laughs> no, we're not going to ice skate. It's kind of cold. We're going to fall. <laughs> Part of what I love is I learned so much and, and that y'all have, you laugh not in a jeering way when I say ice skating instead of roller skating, which I really appreciate. And I think that, you know, laughter goes a long way toward building relationships and, and laughter that is shared laughter, not laughter that is at, but with makes a huge difference. And I think that takes time. You can't just have that real shared joyous laughter with people you just met two minutes ago. And, and that's why it's good that we get stuck in airports because we have lots of time together. Yes, that joy and and laughter is what we hope to translate into the work that we do when it comes to maternal health and improving and engaging families too. Thinking about our engaging with families and healthcare team members, Kimberly, one of the areas we talked about is actually integrating it into the curriculum. What are your thoughts you want to share about that? Yes. So, I mean, when we think about people having children, you have to have a support, right? And, you know, when we announce, oh, I'm pregnant, we're having a baby, you know, your friends, your family get excited. So that's kind of like your first area of support. But then your healthcare provider is that second layer or your first layer, however you want to frame it. But we all come together to support birthing people. And so it's important as we go on this journey that we're able to identify what it is that these families need. So the data is really important to help us identify those reoccurring themes that we can say, okay, if this family or this birthing person says, I'm struggling with postpartum depression, we can say, all right, let's make sure that all the care providers know what they're looking for and can communicate not only to each other, but to that person and to their family, right? Because if we can't do that, we haven't treated the whole unit that's in support of that birthing person and child. So I think that's paramount. A lot of times you don't know what you need to know (laughs) until after you have the baby. And then when you have another one, if you choose to, it can be like, you know, Jania said, it's a totally different ballgame. So that education component, not only for practitioners and our allied health professionals, but also for the family who's that support system is, is very important to what we're doing. I think it's important to remember how we have all, everything integrated and how we are trying to expand the educational opportunity. And then also when we think about the individuals that are providing care, we want to make sure that there's cultural representation so that we are increasing the pipeline to be present. That's been one of our missions as the Belief Project to kind of look at diversity and thinking about the ability to incorporate diverse perspectives and cultural sensitivity approaches with the Belief curriculum. Allison, do you want to share some of the thoughts that we've had? Yeah, so I think one really important piece that I try to practice when I'm interacting with patients is to 
when I meet somebody in a clinical setting, say, well, what's your understanding of what's going on? Particularly, I take care of complicated patients who are in the hospital because they've got preeclampsia and they have diabetes and they have all these medical problems. And and, and it's a really good grounding exercise for me because although I try to be really aware of the biases that I carry with me, I always make an assumption about how well a patient's going to be able to answer that question and what their understanding is going to be. And I'm always wrong, pretty much 100% of the time. And I'm hoping if I keep doing it, I will stop making the assumption completely. But but it really gives me a chance that the patient may have a very clear understanding and say, well, I had 307 milligrams of protein in my 24-hour urine two days ago. I'm currently in a maximum dose of labetalol. And if I max out on nifedipine, you're going to need to deliver me and my baby is growth restricted. Or they might say something about my blood pressure. And then I can meet them where they are based on what they already know. Another really important piece is to inculcate this idea that I know a lot about my field of medicine, but the patient in front of me has lived in her body her whole life. She knows what feels right to her and what doesn't feel right to her. And she knows what's important to her to prioritize. And so I will say to patients, you know, here are the things I want you to keep an eye out for. And you've lived in your body your whole life. And if something doesn't feel right, I want you to call us. And if the person who answers the phone doesn't seem to be responding appropriately, just show up because we're busy. And sometimes people are doing seven things at once and they're going to miss something. And if you feel something's wrong, I want you to speak up about that. And I think that, you know, incumbent on that is for the clinician not to say, why are you here? You're fine. But to say you were worried enough to come in, let's let's unpack that a little bit. Tell me what's concerning you. Tell me what you're thinking about. And so I think that using the phrase say more a lot, if the patient says something and there's more to it, don't say so anyway, but say say more like and not like, well, I'm interested if you could elaborate on, but just say more and then they can go and tell you what's on their mind and what's concerning them. And so I think that those are the kinds of steps we can take to listen better. And Kimberly D, you were talking the other day about the difference between listening to prepare what you're going to say next and listening to actually hear what the person's saying. And I think that's something we really need to build as part of the way that we care for each other, whether it's in healthcare or just in life with our partners and the people we care about. If we're listening to say what we're going to say next, as opposed to hear what they're actually saying, we're not, we're not caring. And so I think that's really, really important. And then I I wanted to touch back on the education piece and health literacy. And Jania, the first time we met, taught me about this when we were working on developing the New Mom Health website for the fourth trimester project. And Jania had very kindly invited us to come to one of, I think it was a mahogany milk meeting. And we were there, we brought food. It was a Saturday morning and we were showing images and and Jania said, and you know what? You can't just put some biracial person up there and say, oh, we've got representation here. You need to have some women who have braids. You need to have some women that have natural hair. You need to have some women that don't have natural hair because one sort of biracial person does not make your site diverse. And I think that we took that to heart. And one of the foundations that's funded us is that I love that on your website, it's not one biracial person who might be black. You actually have different people who are folks of color. And so I know Jania has said she felt like that with Adeline. That was brilliant. And I'm so glad you said it because I think that we really need to be thoughtful. And there are far too many, you know, handouts that have all white ladies that are talking about pregnancy, or there was a video that South Carolina put together about their perinatal health collaborative. It was beautifully produced, like soft lighting, pretty music. And the only images of black women in the entire video were around contraception, Mm. which suggests that for black birthing people, the solution is not to have babies. And then for white people, we can do things to make it better. And I don't think the people who made the videos set out to make that distinction, but that was what came through loud and clear. And so we just need to be really thoughtful about what images we're showing and what narratives we're perpetuating with the ways that we convey information. That's that's real powerful, Allison, because it it really speaks to this idea of the narrative that's circulated in society 
It's so silent. It's there, though, right? But when you have your uh, vision turned on to see it, I mean, these narratives circulate constantly about who gets to be a a birthing person, who should give birth, who shouldn't give birth. Anyway, I'm best getting into language. Y'all know how I feel about language. I know, but maybe it's a good time to bring the language pieces in. I think that's one unique opportunity that Hash can really see here. We actually focus on the rhetoric and the conversations and how conversations are had and how that impacts what happens in real life. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, we have so many things that influence us that we don't think about on a regular basis, but it comes out in how we communicate with people. And, you know, unfortunately, practitioners can ruin a patient experience in like 10 words or less, you know, and not even really think about it. You know, they're busy, they might be stressed, they have a lot of other concerns that they're tending to. And so, you know, we understand that you're not in there to counsel people per se, But you do have to recognize that what you say matters, how you say it matters, how you introduce yourself to people matters, you know, taking into those cultural considerations, but also the language that you use. You know, people aren't non-compliant just because they don't want to do what you tell them to do. There might be a deeper reason behind their inability to follow through with the instructions that you've given them. And so that comes across in how you speak to somebody. Also, uh, the images that people have of Black women plays a huge role. And I've seen some studies where Black women are well aware of this trope of, you know, the Jezebel, the breeder woman, you know, the bad bitch, and how that affects the care, you know, when we show up in our office, you know, don't have a number of children with you, you know, that's a whole nother conversation. And so those things affect how people talk to us and talk about us. And it makes a difference. So... It definitely makes a difference in the conversations and just thinking about what happens. And I think, I know we were in another conversation earlier thinking about how we even introduce ourselves when on the hospital setting and like with going in for rounding and you all have like all the people in the room and you're either not facing the patient or you're kind of centered where they can't see. And then you just kind of go down the list of what's happening versus stopping and just taking a moment and saying, good morning, my name is, and these are the people. And Something that just centers like acknowledging that you're here and you're not normally here or even that it's a new day. And whenever you walk in, like, I mean, when my son wakes up and he comes into the room, I say good morning. And if he does not say good morning to me back, it's like, wait a minute, that is not what we do. (laughs) You need to respond and say say that I'm here. So actually thinking about what that looks like in healthcare is important too. Jania, did you want to add anything to our conversation? The one thing that I think that we are highlighting as well in our project is the Black father or partner of the birthing person, because oftentimes they're left out. And and Kimberly, it's something that you said that triggered that memory for me as my husband, as a Black father with, you know, some of the healthcare staff who would come in the room, you know, they would just only acknowledge me and speak to me and the crazier thing was it was because he was dressed down, but he worked at the same hospital on in the ED. And once he spoke up, you know, he was like, you know, I, I know you guys, I, you send patients down here, you know, I come up here and they were like, oh, it's you, you look different. And they started treating him differently. And so, you know, what if they didn't have a face to put with his name and then a title to, to go with that? How would they, how do they treat everybody else the same way they were treating him before they recognized who he was, right? And so we need to also acknowledge the fact that these Black birthing folks or mothers 
have partners who do want to be involved and then kind of shedding the narrative of, you know, and people say it all the time. I hear it, you know, the baby daddy. And I'm like, whoa, that is somebody's father. And that's a term we probably shouldn't use. And just remembering to educate that person as well, because they're going home as that person's village. And it makes me think about Charles Johnson, his wife, Kara Johnson, passed away from medical neglect, basically, when she had a C-section and was having a tremendous amount of pain and had blood in her catheter. And the hospital was like, oh, she's fine. Shut up. She's fine. And, And ultimately died when they took her to the operating room. And when Charles speaks about this, he talks about how he wanted to get angry and he wanted to raise his voice, but he knew if he did, they'd call security because he'd be an angry black man and they'd throw him out of the hospital and then there wouldn't be anybody next to her. And so he had to modulate his advocacy on her behalf because he was afraid of how he would be treated. It's interesting because I have interacted with white fathers who have been very angry and everyone's been like, oh, he's very stressed. Like we should support him. And there's this double standard there that is about racism. And it is about the tropes that permeate the culture about what kind of behavior is acceptable for what kind of person. And that has very real consequences. And in that particular case, somebody's dead because her partner had to navigate racism in order to try to advocate for what she needed. I think it's really telling when we think about how we, the things that have to be navigated to think about the systemic inequities, especially in maternal health disparities and how the rates are so vastly different because of different aspects of care and what we have to navigate during this time. And thinking about the BELIEVE project, what are some of the ways that we've thought about how we could actually make broader changes So I think one real cool thing that we have as a team, because, you know, yes, it is the four of us kind of leading the work, but we've built an entire network of people and we're getting some of everyone from each sector involved, including our community-based organizations and like those grassroots organizations, because they're literally boots on the ground working in their communities and finding out what these problems are so that we can all come to, you know, a, a variety of solutions. And I think that one great thing that we have going for us is in our work and networking so close with community members, we're establishing and re-establishing relationships with our policymakers and our legislators. And those are the people who you want at the table when we're talking about creating change, because those are the folks who have the seat at the table. And just making sure that the voices of those who are, you know, Black mothers and Black birthing people are heard in larger audiences so that true change can exist will go far because we all know that if the most marginalized folks have a slight chance of increasing anything, anything, we have better and greater outcomes for all people. And I think that that's the heart of the Belief Project. One thing we definitely want to make it better for for everyone and kind of focusing on that piece and then also doing it with joy and excitement and collaboration. Like we might be in an escape room, but we're going to be cute. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to be basic. Don't be basic. Oh, one of our unique things that we were able to do last grant cycle year, we had the HBCU convening and collaboration between um, historically Black colleges and university. Kimberly C., you want to tell more about just that collaboration and what that looks like? 
Yeah. So, I mean, a big part of what we're trying to do is provide a space for HBCU faculty and students and staff to participate in a meaningful way, right? And Janine and I have talked about this, and we've all talked about how often HBCUs are seen as like community partners. People forget that it's actually, you know, faculty and students and, you know, a collaborative effort at the university to problem solve. And so there are people already at other HBCUs doing work in maternal health. And so the desire to connect with them is one thing that we're doing. And I think we're doing it well because now we have students from Winston-Salem State, we have students from St. Augustine's, we have our own NCAA A&T students from the lactation program who are now going to be positioned to have opportunities to see how research is done, to participate, to network, and build those lines that support a career. HBCU students sometimes don't get those opportunities until they're in their graduate programs or, you know, they're working professionally and they have a desire to go back, but they don't know where to turn in order to get that next step outside of just filling out a paper application to a program. So we're real excited about those HBCU collaborations because it's showing that HBCUs are doing the work, but it's also highlighting a conversation that's important related to resources. Often we don't have the resources that we need to do this work. So working um, with an institution like UNC Chapel Hill is helpful. And in this environment, it shows uh, a level of respect for what's already being done because sometimes we come in and it's like, oh, we're an afterthought. We're not an afterthought on Believe. You know, we're right there from the beginning. My most fun night was the Black Joy Gala. That, you know, I think I blocked some pieces out of those. Like I, I completely forgot about the U-Haul that did not start. <laughs> escape room, escape room. Yeah. <laughs> escape room, activate Broken elevator. <laughs> oh, the chairs that we carried up the stairs. But we found joy in all the things. <laughs> oh, Janine, you want to talk about the Black Joy Gala and kind of, and I think, I think an accomplishment from that night was teaching Alice in the Tamiya line dance. <laughs> Yes, yes, because <laughs> that is extremely difficult to do. And and Allison, you to were teach in. Allison to dance or to do the Tamiya or both. I think you got to qualify. But as Kimberly C was talking about the HBCU convening, we thought, you know, what a great time to grab all key stakeholders. And remember the Believe Project, we're inviting pre-professionals, we're inviting students from both undergraduate and graduate programs, healthcare workers, politicians, community-based organizations, and just families. So we invited everybody to a gala the evening after the HBCU convening was held. And we had a Black Joy Gala where we highlighted all things Black Joy when it comes to maternal and child health, because so often it's a dark, gloomy place. But why not, you know, celebrate those who are creating change now and giving those people their flowers while they're here to receive them. And so that's exactly what we did. We had our former chief justice, Sherry Beasley, come and do a keynote address, as well as Senator Natalie Murdoch, who is one of the spearheaders of the North Carolina Momnibus Act. And in addition to that, we highlighted three students who are going into spaces of maternal health by honoring them with scholarship monies towards their studies. And even more, we were able to connect 
all of the folks who are those pieces of the puzzle that we're trying to put together in one room for a few hours, one night. And so many great things have come from it. We hear that folks are still connecting with one another. People are wanting to collaborate. Other folks are writing grants together. People who have power are, you know, working in tandem with our grassroots organizations now. I know that Senator Murdoch has reached out to a few of the folks from some of the doula collaboratives that were represented that night. And they're, you know, working together. She's like, how can I help you? As you know, the North Carolina Momnibus is just sitting and resting right now. Like what, what other things do you all need? And so that just, you know, I like to say, makes my heart happy to know that all of our friends are becoming friends so that we can do great things. <laughs> And I think it speaks to the power of community that so much of this, that we like to be around each other, which is, which not all academic research is like that. I'll just say that. And, and I think it, it it's fun. We want to be together. We want to tell stories. We want to clarify what kind of skating we're talking about. And I think that that makes it joyful. And I often come back to Joya Kruperi, who asked at one of the Black Mama Matters convening, we keep talking about how to make sure women survive pregnancy. What if we wanted to make sure that they would thrive? And we certainly don't want people to die and we don't want people to experience morbidity. But even if you could just scrape by without it being terrible, I don't think we'd be winning the game. And I really feel like Believe centers that that's what we're about. We're about how do we create the conditions for people to experience joy when they're bringing new life into the world and to feel good about it and and for that to be a celebration. Absolutely. What advice or encouragement would you offer to other healthcare professionals, educators, organizations looking to do something similar with collaboration across everywhere? So what would you offer as advice to them? I think I would say start with community. I know we've said it a lot, but you can't emphasize it enough. See what grassroots organizations are already doing. Look to see how you can collaborate with them. Bring those resources to them because often they do not have the infrastructure to support a lot of their bigger dreams. You know, start and see what people are doing first, even at other universities, at your HBCUs. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, Kimberly, outside of, you know, just community, establish those relationships or foster rather those relationships that if you have them already with HBCUs within your own area or region, we know, you know, a lot of HBCUs are typically in the Southeast part of the United States, but it doesn't mean, I mean, hello, COVID let us work virtually. So like you can reach across <laughs> and, and connect and then just be mindful again, that we are not your community partners. And we're not here to spearhead the community portion of your project. We're also academics and we're here to assist from the beginning. So that's the other thing too, I guess I would say, I would encourage folks who do want to consider working with HBCUs to start at the beginning of the project so that people don't come on and feel like it is an afterthought. I would highlight the need to build a relationship and to continue on. I think, believe, I think Janine and I, I think Allison, I think we did three grants. The third time was a charm. I feel like we did three back to back. We, we back to did. back. <laughs> and then I was like, we had three babies back to back. I don't think we had a very good contraceptive plan. <laughs> 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 but taking the time to be dedicated to working together until something actually comes up and then you're able to build a relationship. I think that's important too. Absolutely. The relationship building. Someone did stop me when we were in Boston together at our last meeting. And they said, you know, your team works so well together. 
And I said, yeah, because we like each other outside of work. (laughs) And I don't think that people understood that over time, we have grown to know each other and each other's families and our likes and our dislikes. And that makes our work so much more enjoyable, but it also helps us because we balance each other out. And that's what makes our projects successful. I think as a white faculty member from the predominantly white institution on the call, I think a, a tremendous amount of humility is really important. And I think that I remember Kimberly D when we were first talking about this project and my husband and I share an office, which was a good idea before COVID and then became not so great. And, and I think I said like 18 times. And when I say something stupid and, and I'm not realizing what's important, <laughs> you just tell me. And Jeff is like, could you stop it? And so I, I probably overdid it, but I, but I think that I, I like to invoke the great Brene Brown and say, you know, I'm here to get it right. I'm not here to be right. And I want to make space for whether I'm doing the dance wrong, which was frequent, literally doing the dance wrong or or figuratively <laughs> like not in time to the music, like for somebody to be like, hey, let's shift a little bit. And so I, I really appreciate y'all's patience with, with teaching me to dance literally and figuratively. And then with it, you know, being okay if I have the wrong kind of skating assumption and, and me being okay with it too, um, because I think that, there's a lot of power dynamics that are very real and that have been reinforced by hundreds of years of badness. And, and this can't just go away because we're like, oh, it's going to be fine. And so I just appreciate y'all being very intentional about building relationships and then being able to call each other in ideally or call each other out as necessary so that we can do the work because it's way too important to get caught up with ego and semantics along the way. I'm so excited that we had the opportunity to have this conversation today. And thank you for taking your time to be here. And thank you to all those that have listened today. For more podcast videos, blogs, and maternal health content, visit Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center website at maternalhealthlearning.org. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear more of, review our podcast, and share with like-minded innovators. We've got some great episodes recording now, so be sure that you subscribe. Let's keep talking. Tag us in your post at hashtag maternal health innovation. And I'm Kimberly Harper, and we'll see you again next week on the Maternal Health Innovation Podcast. This project is supported by the Health Resources and Service Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS under grant number U7CMC33636 State Maternal Health Innovation Support and Implementation Program Cooperative Agreement. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.